So welcome here, Paul. Um, I want to do a quick introduction, then you can fill it in. Uh, Paul Welk is an attorney, transactional attorney with Tucker and Orangeburg. Uh, we've worked with Tucker and Orangeburg for 17, 18 years now, pretty much my entire private practice career. Paul is a husband, a father. I think your son is nine. Is that right? That's pretty good. Okay, great. Nine years old. And um, uh, yeah, Paul is a physical therapist and an attorney as well. And probably out of anybody I've ever talked with, um, handles the largest deal flow from both ends, from buyer and seller in the entire uh, private practice physical therapy M&A space. Anything you'd like to add in there, Paul? No, I, that sounds like you've just about covered it. So I, I look forward to answering some questions. I'm, I'm sure you've got some good ones. Great. So, um, and by the way, for anybody that's watching this right now, if you do have a question, just, just type it in the QA, Q&A and I'll help moderate here. Um, so the, our session specifically is called uh, Top Three Things, Driving the Value of Your Practice Today, a Transactional Attorney's Perspective. Paul, I know uh, five or six years ago, we released a training, I think it was called, uh, I want to sell my practice in two to five years. And you listed, I think it was 14, um, 14 variables that drive practice value. And obviously EBITDA was in there, um, new patient sources, number of locations, number of uh, therapists, et cetera. Um, can you talk about over the last 12 months, how that has changed or how that has like more narrowly focused to the three categories. And then I'll, I'll dive deeper once you share everybody the top three things. Sure. I, I guess, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it ultimately comes down to, and I, and I caught part of Bob's discussion here, uh, presentation just beforehand. And I think it was a good, you know, lead into this about, you know, dr driving the financial metrics of the practice and ultimately maintaining that EBITDA number, because at the end of the day, you know, and we'll talk about some of these factors. I mean, that still remains, again, these are all, you know, my views from the transactional side and what I see. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, the EBITDA is what drives it. And I think what we've seen over the last, you know, 12 months or whatever the number is, you know, with the onset of COVID and with changes in reimbursement, um, and maybe I'll speak to COVID first, it's really been the ability of a practice to be nimble and ultimately work their way through that process and continue to work their way through that process. I know we've got folks in different areas of the country where you're subject to different restrictions, but it's really kind of, you know, have you been able to maintain that number when you think about the value of the practice? And if you haven't been able to maintain, you know, your historical EBITDA number or, you know, ultimately grow it, um, you know, sort of what's the what's the rationale behind that? And we know some of the key drivers, but ultimately, can you show that you can return? And what I mean by that is when you when you look at values, if you were going out to sell your practice today, probably not many of the folks on this um, presentation would say, well, the last 12 months is a good reflection of what my practice is worth. So I think where we've seen a big value driver or a big you know, step to closing a transaction is showing that you know, I've essentially returned or show a trend towards returning. I think what we see a lot of potential, you know, purchasers or folks involved in transactions looking at, you know, can I return to 90%, for example, of a, of a what I'll call a pre-COVID number as a reflection that my practice is 
back or that I'm, I'm back on track so that I can justify you know, a, a valuation for my practice that might not be reflective, consistent with what we would see historically. So I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll pause there, Chad, and, and see if you've got any questions on that piece. So factor number one, it sounds like, is resiliency, ability to bounce back. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. Resiliency, and then ultimately you know, tying that through to the financial metrics and how they reflect on the practice, whether it's financial or operational to show that my financial performance may be lagging, but here's what I have in the pipeline to bring it back to where it was. So for those of you that are watching right now, and I think this is where there's a uniqueness here with Paul's experience that I, 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 I'm hoping our, our viewers can really um, tap into here, but he he um, represents at different times, both the buyer and or the seller, right? You, you've been on both sides. Um, right. So you, you understand both perspectives really well. Um, the, the resiliency, and it, you could think about this, if you're an acquirer, right? If you're a USPH, um, Chris Redding was just on here uh, before you, Paul. So, um, you, you know, if, if you're an acquirer, why that would be important. So, you know, your ability to run and manage a business through a stressful time, right? A non-optimum economic time. We have restrictions. We have, you know, clear shower curtains between all the treatment tables and all that fun stuff. We're trying to mitigate um, all the changes that happened last year. You know, think through why that would be important uh, from the acquirer's perspective. And I think that's a, a viewpoint that we frequently don't look at. So, um, is there another place or something else you had in mind there, Paul, relative to resiliency? No, I, I think you're, I think you, you've hit it on the head. I think the other piece tied to resiliency is sort of doing a, a deep dive and seeing where you can, where you can improve. I, I think I've talked to a number of practice owners that said, that have said to me, boy, I would never want to go through the last year again, but it's been a great thing for my business. And they've taken the opportunity to say, for example, I always thought I was a little bit overstaffed in the, you know, on the administrative side, or I always knew that, you know, this physical therapist wasn't really cutting it like I hoped in my practice, or I always wanted to look at this, you know, revisit this payer contract and see if we couldn't have a discussion with the payer and, and get our reimbursement up a little bit. And I think this is really forced people by necessity to do the things that they probably always knew they should have done. <laughs> but now yeah, there's been a, a fire underneath them because they have to do it. Um, and again, I, I, I know many of you out there are living through this, but I hear that with great frequency is this has caused me to do the things I should have done 12 months ago. Yeah. Business autophagy, I think is how one of my uh, partners put it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, that's great. So um, let's, I, I don't see any questions that are in right now um, on the resiliency getting back to normal. I lied. One just came in. Um, so Pradeep, this may have been answered before. How do I find uh, practices that want to sell in my geographic area? And what is the first step once I have a potential acquisition? I guess in terms of, you know, depending on the, the size of your practice, if you are a smaller practice, I think it's somewhat knowing your market and, and trying to, you know, identify colleagues that might be in that 
spot in their career. So for example, we have a number of practices, the typical demographic, um, at least historically of a physical therapy private practice has been one owner without a succession plan. So I'm sure all of you, in, and there may be a lot of you on the, on the call, um, but from a, from a practical standpoint, when you're looking at identification of possible practices to join with you or acquire, we've seen, I think, an, an increase in approaching that one owner, you know, nearing retirement age, who really you know, doesn't have an exit strategy and may look to you as a, as a fellow practitioner in the area to say, hey, you know, maybe we can come together, you can you know, pay me a fair price for my practice and I can you know, transition out and have, a, have an exit through you. I think it's mostly, uh, you know, most of you aren't in a position where you'd go out and hire a firm to say, go find me targets to acquire. So that is an option, but I think it's probably for the, you know, most smaller private practices not there. I think it's through networking events and, and knowing the market. And then I think, I think the second part of the question is, well, sort of what do I do if I get to that point? I think what the, the first step is usually, you know, I kind of think of it like cups of coffee. You know, so if Chad and I were, were, were talking and he said, hey, Paul, I'd like to buy your practice. You know, I always think of it as, okay, I'm willing to sort of sit down and have a cup of coffee with Chad and not share too much about my business, but enough to see if it's worth that second cup of coffee. And I think if it is, that's when you get that, you know, non-disclosure confidentiality agreement and start to share information so that you can determine what you think you'd pay for the practice and they can figure out whether they think that's a fair deal and you keep talking. Yeah, and just a personal share, Pradeep. Um, I, I've been in this situation, not with an external acquisition, um, but internally. And uh, I, I just relentlessly text Paul until he shows up for the second cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> that's what I would do. Um, and we'll, we'll get Paul's contact in here uh, later. Uh, Pradeep <laughs> says, thank you. Sure. Um, okay. So number one, uh, ability to bounce back to normal, uh, get lean during lean times and still keep the doors open and run a successful, valuable practice. What's, uh, what's point number two that our, uh, owners should focus on. Sure. I, I think when you think about, you know, value in the practice, you know, probably your largest asset, if you really think about it is your staff. And so what, what I think about or what I see in these transactions is how, how you know, buyers and sellers view a well-trained, you know, long-term retention, you know, staff that has a positive culture. And you can't put a dollar sign on culture, but I, I've seen many folks that have walked away from potential transactions because, uh, you know, any one of a variety of factors that I think sort of tie into this kind of cultural staff, uh, you know, community reputation. When you think about a practice, largely what you're buying is the goodwill of that business. So when you think of a physical therapy practice, it's, you know, and all of you have equipment in your space, it's not like you're buying a business that owns a million dollar MRI unit. I mean, your, the equipment in and of itself is not where the value is. The value is in you know, the business itself as a going concern and essentially what I'll summarize is kind of your reputation in the community, which I think is largely driven by staff and the qualifications of the staff that you are able to attract and employ. Great. So never thought about this before, but um, if I were looking to sell 
do you know anybody that has ever had like a uh, an employee roster with longevity? And are there any? It, how could we show in a, a potential acquirer? How could we demonstrate that to a potential acquirer that the goodwill that we have with with our teams, with our staff? I think depending on the the way that this the sort of sale is structured, you know, I, I think you either if you're going out with a large kind of informational packet on the front side you can include that within the highlights of the practice. You know, for example, you know, X percentage of our staff have an advanced, um, you know, OCS, et cetera, you know, depending on the nature of your practice or, you know, we're all DPTs, um, you know, or, we're, you know, th those type of things um, that you think are, are valuable to your practice. So, you know, not suggesting a DPT <laughs> is more valuable than another one, but, you know, somebody may look at it in today's market and say, hey, you know, I, I like this. I, I like the approach. I like the importance that this practice has set, for example, on continuing education. So I think, you know, it, on every one of these transactions, at some point, you're going to provide an employee roster. And, and I think it, it doesn't hurt to include that information and talk about it up front. You know, talk about the value of, of your staff and what they mean to the practice. And if they've been there for 20 years, that probably means you're a good place to work. Wonderful. Um, so number one was resiliency. Number two is uh, team or your staff. What's number three? Um, I think number three, and, and like I said, I got a little bit of, of Bob's there, but you know, if, if someone is looking at your practice, I think he might've mentioned scalability or systems or those type of words. But when you think about it, you know, many buyers out there in the market are not buying your practice to say, Chad, I'd love to buy your practice. And when I buy it, I don't want you to grow at all. I just want you to do exactly what you've been doing. And in, in 20 years, you know, we'll be in the same spot. Most are doing it, you know, as I assume would anybody out here that's participating that would say, I'd like to buy a practice or I'd like to grow my own practice. You know, stagnant practices are, are probably not the most attractive. Um, again, I'm not suggesting you have to have gone from one offices, one office, excuse me, to five to be desirable, but I, I do think sort of showing that you have processes in place that can allow your practice to run efficiently and run well, and maybe add on that second office because you say, okay, here's what I've got in place from a compensation structure. Here's my, how my management runs. You know, I, I can, I can plug in another office and be able to handle that with my systems if that's your, your plan. But I think just showing that you've got the ability to do those things makes you more attractive to a potential acquirer. Got it. Um, so pretty classic resiliency team systems. Pretty fair summary yeah. so far. Yeah, I, I think it is. And again, as you indicated, there's a wide variety of factors. I think I'll go back to the first one because when you, when you first think about getting that offer, there's not a lot of information that's typically exchanged before before that first number comes across. If you if if I pretend I'm the seller, you know I, I may provide some tax returns, some you know revenue numbers, some you know reimbursement per visit, those type of metrics. But I think you know sort of getting out in front of of that process and and really selling the value of your practice you know, early on, or, you know, once you get that letter of intent, if you think there's room to negotiate, to go back to some of these things that, you know, that we've talked about. 
Great. So um, along those lines, within the marketplace today, and I tried, um, I was looking for, uh, if you had any recent interviews, the latest I could find was like May or June of this year. Um, but uh, what are you seeing within the marketplace right now? What's the pulse look like? I know um, when you and I talked in preparation for um, this event, you had, you had shared that, you know, th there's a, uh, there's life again in terms of deal flow. So can you shed some uh, light on that in terms of what you see right now within the marketplace? We're, we're still seeing a large volume of transactional work that's coming through in our office and we're still seeing, you know, healthy multiples for practices. I think the, I think the, the biggest hurdle to overcome sort of back a little bit to what we talked about in the beginning is, is talking, you know, sort of explaining, and I don't think there's a lot of explaining necessary in most cases, you know, why your last 12 months looks the way it does, but every market is a little bit different. So you may have some nuances as to decisions that you made or, you know, government orders that affected how your practice was able to operate, but really showing that you've been able to, to bounce back, we'll go back to your word, resiliency, showing that you've been able to, to come back. And I think we've seen different things in recent transactions. So, you know, do you see something that's got a little bit more of maybe an earnout component that says, okay, you're telling me you're back. I think you're back, <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to hold back some of my price that I'm going to pay to you, Chad, until you really prove to me, you know, from a bottom line perspective that I'm, I'm getting what I think I'm buying uh, based on your historic numbers or you know, pre-COVID numbers, if you will. Okay. So just quick example, if I'm selling my practice to you for a million dollars, I might not get a million dollars at the closing table. Yeah, I, I might get, say, seven hundred, and we have three hundred thousand in escrow that's released to me later, once I prove the performance of the company. Yeah, right. I, I, I think that's I think that's a reasonable example, especially if I'm if I'm paying you on what you're telling me your old numbers reflected a million, and your current numbers reflect seven hundred, and you tell me, hey, Paul, I'm there. I, I might say, okay, I'll, you know prove it to me. I'd like to do the deal. And if you show me at the end of the day, again, I, we're not seeing that across the board, but I've seen that in more transactions. And I think we'll look at people start to add some nuances. Because if you think about it from the buyer's perspective, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to overpay for something. I want to pay you fairly. And if you are delivering to me the EBITDA that you said you were, then I think that's how people are dealing with that. Yeah. I think that's very fair. Um, so question from uh, Mike Strakel, Paul, can you articulate what the multiples are by practice size or revenue? So, and, um, and, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I'll, well, just not to hang you out, uh, but I, I can at least share what Chris shared from his perspective. Oh, that would be gonna, good because he, he's a lot smarter than me. So let's hear what he said. Come on. So, well, he, he kind of, he gave an ascending rate. So he said, you know, we're seeing deals in the five, six, seven, or eight multiple um, is what I wrote down. Um, hopefully I got that right, but it, it, in that range. So, and I, again, I think that depends on EBITDA and practice size as well, but it, it, if you could shed some light on that, I think that would be great. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would certainly concur with that with, I, I think in terms of most of the deals that are coming across my desk, obviously, if you've got a smaller practice, you know, with with significantly lower revenues, you're you're probably not going to get that five multiple. 
as Chad said, you know, in, on a past discussion that he and I had, we, we went through sort of all of those factors that, you know, may, you know, push you up or down, or, you know, quarter multiple or, you know, a half turn or however you choose to describe that. But I think, I think, barely, and, and I don't want to necessarily state the obvious, but I mean, EBITDA is the biggest driver. So if you've got a practice, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me. And as, as I've done a large, large volume of these at this point, you know, bigger isn't always better when it comes to practices in terms of numbers and staff and locations. It really comes down to that, you know, as the primary driver, in my experience, the EBITDA number. I've, I've worked on transactions that have four locations that the, the valuation of the practice was more than somebody that has 25 mm-hmm. because they've run them extremely well. They're very efficient in a good reimbursement market. So I think for those of you out there that are small practices, and again, we certainly all have you know challenges, and I know you we've talked about a number of those already. I think when you when you think about that, it, it's really what you're able to kind of drive to that bottom line that will affect your practice. And, and don't go into it with the perspective of you know who'd want to buy one practice, because what I, what I'm still seeing is there's a fair amount of people that would or buy up, you know, a one, two, three, whatever that is. There, there's still a very viable market in my experience for, you know, smaller practices in terms of numbers. Yep. So let's talk uh, uh, real numbers here for a second. So I have a practice, 300K in EBITDA. Like what's the, because, and Chris did this as well, smaller, larger, just as a point of reference. So my EBITDA is 300K, what range of, multiple could I expect? I mean, I think if, if we're following through the discussion on, on Chris's range, I mean, in my experience, you're going to be on the smaller end of that. So you're going to be, you know, again, in a, in a typical deal, you're going to be closer to the five end of the spectrum, I think, than he described in the eight end when you're at that number. Yeah. Um, Are you seeing anything smaller than five? Um, I have, I, okay. I have, but, but again, there's, and it's, it's always tough. And I know people want to know what their practice is worth. It's always a little difficult to generalize. We've definitely seen smaller numbers than that. Um, but I think if you're at 300,000, you know, I, I think that puts you near the bottom of that range. Got it. Um, so now my EBITDA, um, magic and we're up to 600 K. I, I just, I want everybody to see the direct relationship between EBITDA and multiple. Yeah. So um, it, it, I mean, is it the same thing? Is it now maybe? Oh, one, no, oh no. I mean, you're, you're probably going to be at least kind of one, they'll call it like one turn. So I, I would think you'd go up if, if my, if your original example was same practice, same location, and you're going from a 300,000 to a 600,000, I, I think you've got to be up at, you know, a, a good multiple, if not more in terms of valuation. Now, obviously you compress that because you know, at, at some point, even if your EBITDA is 5 million, you know, you're not, you're not at a 25, right? So, so there's, there's kind of, if you will, there's more movement there probably from, if this makes sense, from $10 of EBITDA to a million or 2 million. And then you really kind of get more compressed at the top because, you know, the, the numbers get so large. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then, uh, so what would be like the EBITDA threshold for like an eight or, uh, somebody 
uh, dreamy and hyper aggressive like myself that wants a, a tent. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, my guess is this is recorded. It'll be on the it'll be on the internet forever. Um, yeah, and, and, and that, also this is reflective of today today's marketplace. So if you're watching this in 2041 or something like that, it, it might not be relevant. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you're looking at it for a 10 multiple um, and, and you forced me to give a number, which I feel like you're doing, I, I would say you'd be probably in maybe the 3 million-ish range of EBITDA. I Very mean, good. I, I mean, you've got to get a pretty big number if you think you're going to be in that range. Perfect. Thanks for playing. Paul. <laughs> I'm not sure if I won or lost, but I'm glad I played. Uh, you, you definitely won. That, that, that was great. Um, so this is from anonymous attendee. Uh, what valuation consideration is there uh, when staff are independent contractors versus employees? Um, I, I think it ultimately goes in a situation like that. I think you're still going to look at you know longevity. I, I, I think at the end of the day in the financials, the expense for your labor is going to come through and be reflected in that EBITDA number. I, I think from a from a compliance review standpoint, a buyer is going to want to make sure that they are comfortable that the folks are appropriately classified. So we've definitely had transactions where buyers have been uncomfortable with independent contractor classifications and have required people to change to either employees um, or no longer work with the practice. So as everybody probably knows, there's a, you know, there's a fine line between when you can treat somebody as a contractor for IRS purposes. So you just need to make sure that you're comfortable. I think that's probably the bigger risk if you said all of my therapists are contractors. And again, it's certainly supportable. I'm not suggesting that the individual is doing it wrong, but you need to be able to support that because there are buyers that would say, I don't like that model because I'm not comfortable with the risk under the classification. Very fair. And it, it, it seems there seems to be a thread of alignment. So from billing structure, compensation models, um, I think it all falls under the umbrella of culture and how we do business, that there should be some sort of alignment between the buyer and seller. Otherwise, there's going to be some money to mitigate that, right? Money and time. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, another follow-up question from Mike. Mike's on fire here this morning. Uh, can you explain how most transactions are structured for the seller once you've agreed upon the price? If you've, if you've got a, I guess there's a couple of ways these deals could be structured. You can structure them as an asset sale. Those are fairly common, especially if you've got a buyer, for example, that's established in the market and has a tax ID and billing contracts, so they may not need your contracts. They will often come in and say, I'm gonna buy the assets of your practice. So that's one option. Um, the second option is if, if someone is maybe newer in the market and they don't have a lot of those relationships, they may choose to try to buy the stock or membership interests of your company so that they can step into the tax ID and better be able to bill. I'll give one caveat on a structure that um, is, is sort of a, a hybrid of that that we're seeing more and more of, and I don't want to you know, get too far into the weeds, but we see a, a, a number of buyers now that have a structure where they require you to basically reorganize your practice prior to the time of sale so that you keep a piece of ownership afterwards and the buyer buys a majority. So 
I, I won't get into the details of the reorganization, but I might come to you, Chad, and say, hey, I'd love to buy your practice, but you're one of the workhorses behind this. I expect you to stay around and I'd like to keep you motivated to do that. So we'll go through this reorganization and I'll ultimately end up buying 70%, but you're going to keep your 30% and help us to grow this because in the Harrisburg market, they don't know Paul Welk from Pittsburgh, but they know Chad and he can, he can drive the value of that. So we see that on a, on, on a number of deals that we're working on. That's very common these days. Very fair. Um, I don't see any other questions um, right now. Um, the, the other thing that you and I talked about before, um, which was uh, you're a transactional attorney, right? So I know we have owners on here that are looking to potentially buy and merge with practices in their area. And I know we have uh, practices that are also looking to sell and they're thinking about that and they need to get their ducks in a row. What's the best way um, to contact you if somebody needs, needs your help? Sure. Um, either by phone or email. I, I don't know if, if you've got my contact information somewhere, Chad, that you can flip it out. But I, um, I mean, my email is pwelk at tuckerlaw.com um, or my phone, my direct dial is 412-594-5536. So I'd be happy to talk to anybody about your, you know, what you're contemplating. You know, if you have something that you want to bounce off somebody, you can track me down. Yeah. And this is an unsolicited plug for Paul and his firm. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and by the way, every time that somebody asked, so what I used to do when somebody would ask me for your contact is I would, I had a contact card, but I had you in my phone twice, once with your cell number. And I think I shared that a couple of times and I was like, uh, uh, but I, the other one is, a like almost like a business card that's in the phone. I forget what, forget what it's called. So then I, yeah, I, I learned how to get rid of that. Um, but uh, the, um, the other thing that I'll say is um, there, there's some confusion between, um, for lack of a better term, a broker or an agent, which we've had on um, at these events as well. And they're fantastic um, in, in terms of taking some of the, the workload off of going through a transaction, whether you're doing an internal sale or external sale. Um, I've gone through an internal sale on uh, multiple uh, occasions went from yeah, 100% in 2012. And over the last eight or nine years, I've sold off about 36%. Paul and his firm have walked us through the entire way, um, it, through the steps. And they they actually um, have helped us from all ends. It was very amicable. And we just laid out the terms and uh, they just took care of that. And it's at a, you know, a fraction of the cost if we were, if I was somehow like using um, another outside broker in order to sell internally. Um, so it's just, it's make sure you're legally protected when you're going through a transaction, whether you're buying or selling. Um, you, and, and again, I, I know nobody else in the space um, that is even close to you in terms of deal flow or knowledge base. So thank you for being here and, and sharing tremendously, um, sharing your, your vast knowledge. Thanks, Paul. Oh, no problem. I appreciate the invitation. I always enjoy talking to this group. So. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thank. A uh, couple other things for you. Uh, first one is a comment from Stacy Schatz. Paul Welk was a huge asset uh, when I went through a partnership. Shannon asked, uh, for owners who aren't looking to sell in the next five years, is it worth getting a practice valuation, getting EBITDA calculated, et cetera, just to have a baseline? 
I think that it is. And first, for th thanks, Stacy. It's good to uh, see, see your note come up there. Hope all is well with you. Um, I, I think it's I think it's very helpful because I think sometimes folks don't have any idea what their practice is worth. So it you know ultimately, if you're going to, for example, sell internally, you know, and and you're thinking that the practice is worth something, uh, you know, we, we see a lot of not a lot, that may not be fair. We see a number of internal sales that, 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 that don't work just because the parties are thinking the valuations are that different or the practice is worth so much. I mean, as you can imagine, if you have a new newer grad who just bought a house, who's got a couple of kids at home and is paying off mortgages and, you know, and, and tuition bills, and you say to them, I'd love to have you buy in you know, 20% is going to cost you $200,000 or whatever. For most people, that's probably a short discussion. So if, I think having that education piece, I think is, is very helpful. A lot of your accountants can, you know, probably at least give you an idea of valuation or, you know, there are a number of folks out there that work to value PT businesses. Yeah. That, and I, I think that's very uh, agreeable. The, the other thing that I want to say is, you're not, so you might not be looking to sell uh, within the next five, but even if it's 15 years down the road, Shannon, you, you don't magically wake up in the, in the year 2036 and, the, and let's say you have a number, a million or three million or whatever you think the practice uh, should be worth at that point. You're not going to just magically calculate EBITDA at that future point and have the practice. You, you have to start understanding the driver's um, to EBITDA and what your revenue and, and costs look like as well. And the EBITDA exercise helps with that tremendously. Um, we did get a couple other questions in here, Paul. I'm going to capture these um, because we're at time. But uh, last question for you. Um, do you have this book, Jim Collins? I don't. Should I? Are, are you an Audible? You're a runner, so are, do you listen yeah, I, to Audible? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a runner. So is, it, is that what I should listen to on my next run? Well, well I, long run, but yeah. I can mail you a copy of this or I can send you uh, an audible. All right, I'll take an audible and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put right. it on. We'll, we'll get this to you. Uh, thanks for being here, Paul. Um, if you can give Paul some love in the chat, that would be great. And we'll try to capture your other questions and get Paul to answer these in the future. All right, hope everybody has a great meeting. Thanks for having me.